A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At Bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 30 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Please listen to Season 6, Episode 29 for Part 1 of this two-part case. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. The names of some individuals mentioned in this episode have been changed to protect their identities. They Walk Among Us is part of the Acast Creator Network. November 1990. South Ronaldsey in Orkney. Seven young children are taken into care by social services under place of safety orders. At that time, their father, a sadistic tormentor, was behind bars. He had been convicted of abusing his children years earlier. However, following questioning from social workers, some of the youngsters had supposedly disclosed that they were now the victims of ritualistic abuse by members of the local community. Orkney social workers were certain there was evidence of abuse, but it was argued that this had never occurred. The stories came from traumatised children who were telling officials what they wanted to hear. This led to further children from four families in South Ronaldsey being taken into care, despite their parents insisting that the abuse claims were not true. 
After five weeks, the children were returned to their parents following a sheriff's ruling in a proof hearing. However, the case was successfully appealed by social services. It was determined that the sheriff had been impartial and impeded the ability to understand if abuse did or did not occur. It was agreed an inquiry would be held to investigate the conduct of those people involved. This episode follows what happened next. The eight-month inquiry into the events began in Kirkwall during August 1991. The benches within the town hall were occupied by four families. The McEwans, the Browns, the Thomases and the Hills, as well as their supporters. They had come together and formed the South Ronaldsey Action Group. On the opening day of the inquiry, Donald McFadden QC recounted what happened. On February 27th, nine children were taken by social workers from four families in South Ronaldsey and were flown off the island. He said that to understand how the children were removed from their homes, the inquiry needed to first hear about the Williams family. McFadden detailed the allegations made against the father of the Williams children, telling those in attendance, The father of that family was convicted of physical and sexual abuse, and at a later date in 1990, further allegations of sexual abuse on the part of the older children of the family resulted in some of the younger members of the family being taken into care. Donald McFadden QC revealed that three children in the Williams home told PC Linda Williamson and Liz McLean, who was an official for the Royal Scottish Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, that nine children of the four families in question had been subjected to or connected to sexual abuse. After these allegations were made, they were the topic of discussion between Director of Orkney's Social Work, Paul Lee, and his senior field officer for child care, Sue Miller, as well as two representatives of the Northern Constabulary. After their discussion, they decided to seek place of safety orders for the children of those four families. The children were identified in official documents only through their initials. We will call them 13-year-old Wendy Brown, 11-year-old Emma Brown and 8-year-old Sam Brown, 10-year-old Peter Hill and 8-year-old Tilly Hill, 15-year-old Sam McEwen and 11-year-old James McEwen and 12-year-old Ben Thomas nine-year-old Matilda Thomas. On February 27th, the joint team consisting of police and social workers headed to the four families' homes to remove the children. They were taken to accommodation in Kirkwall before being placed on a chartered aircraft heading for the mainland, where they were all split up. Most of the children were placed with foster parents, 
and Sam McEwen was sent to a residential school. After detailing the allegations of abuse made by the children, Paul Lee defended the decision to seize them. It was alleged that three Williams children had made claims against the parents of the four families, and they named their children as victims. Sue Miller had told those people present in a strategy meeting that there was enough evidence to sink the Titanic. As a result of her comments, social workers and the police felt the concern was warranted. The nine children should be removed from their families. This decision was heavily criticised. Social Work Director Paul Lee explained there was no suitable accommodation on Orkney. The mounting public pressure had essentially forced him to remove the children to the mainland. Sue Miller told the inquiry that those involved in the decision-making process were attacked in the media. She lambasted the press coverage of the case as journalists had been allowed to attend the public children's panels that were held. Miller spoke about the letters written to the Williams children and her concerns about the communication. Specifically, a letter Mrs Thomas wrote to Billy Williams, where she mentioned the day he fixed her heater and signed off by writing, I love you. Miller said, why he would be fixing a heater and just the inappropriateness of a woman writing I love you to a child who had been sexually abused. Miller's concerns about the letter were heightened after some of the other nine children allegedly disclosed information about Billy Williams being abused by Mrs Thomas. Miller testified, In terms of the statements that the girls made about having seen Billy Williams sexually involved with Mrs. Thomas and saying that Billy Williams was very sad and not happy about it. Sue Miller explained that she believed many of the letters sent to the Williams children contained coded messages linked to organised ritualistic child abuse. One of the older Williams children had made a comic strip about a family of love hearts. This was viewed as containing subliminal messaging. Mrs Williams wrote a poem to her daughter that read in part, No harm can come to one another when we love each sister and brother. Sue Miller believed this to be linked to allegations of incestual sibling abuse and the sex abuse network supposedly operating on South Ronaldsea. Hugh Campbell, QC, who was representing the RSS PCC in the inquiry, asked her, If it be that there has been connection between brother and sister that the mother was aware of, did it seem to you that this was a particularly revolting reference in terms of it being sent to a child of tender years? Miller replied, I think it is a very inappropriate reference. I would be resistant to being too judgmental given the very difficult situation that incest obviously is. Sue Miller also believed references to rainbows, 
the brownies and turtles were of concern. She said that one of the Williams children had drawn a rainbow while making an allegation of sexual abuse. Miller had been accused of instructing a Kirkwall police officer to break into the manse where Reverend Morris Mackenzie lived on the night Mrs. Williams brought her three-year-old there to avoid the child being taken. Jeanette Chisholm, who had been acting as the coordinator for the Williams children in February 1991, spoke at the inquiry. Chisholm explained that Liz McLean was to carry out the interviews and McLean made the children feel safe when she spoke with them. Chisholm said that the Williams children were open with their dislike and distrust of social workers. They liked Liz McLean because she worked for the RSS PCC, not Orkney Social Services. Jeanette Chisholm told the inquiry, I do not think she asked questions about what their experiences were at all. Her focus was where the children were at in terms of what they were feeling. Two days after the Williams children were interviewed by Liz McLean, Jeanette Chisholm was informed that there had been allegations of abuse made at the disclosure therapy sessions. McLean was present at each of the three interviews where allegations of abuse were apparently made. It was based on the information from these interviews that the nine other children were removed from their homes. Chisholm was under the belief that children never lied when making allegations of abuse. She later said, If it is a secret, they'll deny. As long as it's a secret, denial will come for the same reason secrecy is there. Keeping something safe. Jeanette Chisholm was also shown some of the letters sent to the Williams children. She told the inquiry that she found the constant references to rainbows and turtles as, quote, odd. Jan Mackenzie, the Reverend's wife, later told the inquiry that the supposed evidence of costumes and gatherings were from the events the church held for the local children, such as Halloween parties. One of the children had told the social workers they had attended this event dressed as a turtle. Jeanette Chisholm and Director Paul Lee were informed of the disclosures on the same day. Chisholm denied telling Senior Field Officer for Child Care Sue Miller about the allegations. Miller claimed she only heard about the allegations on February 13th, two weeks before the children were taken. Sue Miller had written a letter of resignation to the director of social work and accused him of not prioritising childcare and lacking leadership. That same day, she was alleged to have spoken to Dr Linda Hamilton, who worked for the Orkney Health Board. Dr Hamilton told the inquiry Sue Miller had disclosed that they were investigating allegations of a child sex abuse ring that involved a number of families from South Ronaldsey. Dr Hamilton also claimed that Miller told her Reverend Morris Mackenzie had been named as an abuser and followed up with, quote, 
the community would be shocked, but should not be, as it was not unknown for vicars to be involved in such scandals. Sue Miller also told Dr. Hamilton that the police had enough evidence to sink the Titanic, a phrase she would repeat. Miller disputed this account and called it rubbish. Instead, she said that Dr. Hamilton had been pressing her for information on the case of the Williams children. Some of the social workers who did not work in Orkney told the inquiry about their experience on the case. Ian Gilmore, the deputy director of Strathclyde Social Work, said that he had been asked to provide assistance in the case by Orkney Islands Council on February 14, 1991. In a communication fax to his office, the social work department considered taking 13 children from homes in South Ronaldsey. This number later decreased, with the Hill family only being confirmed as potentially involved in the days before the children were taken. Ian Gilmore told the team leader Sue Miller that they did not carry out removals at a pre-planned early hour the way Orkney workers were planning. Still, he was told it was because they wanted to do it before the children went to school. Rab Murphy from Strathclyde said that they had been under the assumption that the police had enough evidence to secure the arrests of the parents involved in the case. When he got to the briefing on the night before the children were taken, he said Detective Inspector Heddle stated, Without hard evidence, we have nothing. If we have nothing else, then the statements the children have made are worthless. Rab Murphy expounded that there was a clear division between the outside social workers and the Orkney social workers, and he felt as though they were being kept in the dark. Murphy also said that his team had doubts about the justification for the operation and that he was disturbed by the police's view of the evidence. Murphy stated, We had been led to believe that the police had strong evidence to arrest the adults involved. At this stage, D.I. Heddle was indicating that this was certainly not the case. Rab Murphy also said that the social workers had been informed of the details of the allegations the three Williams children had made by Liz McLean. Some mainland social workers had questioned whether the allegations may have been led and asked if it was just a coincidence that the claims were made within days of each other and with such a degree of similarity. Murphy said his meeting with director Paul Lee and the lead social worker Sue Miller had turned into a, quote, bit of a slanging match. Murphy explained that the Orkney social work management team were not forthcoming with information to show why they were taking such a drastic measure in conducting the removals. The Strathclyde social workers felt as though they were being used simply for assistance in removing the children, not the investigation into why the youngsters were being removed. 
when the Strathclyde team expressed concerns about the children's foster placements and wanted to check in on them the day after they were rehomed. Officials from outside Orkney were instructed to leave by Sue Miller. These social workers were cross-examined by Hugh Campbell, QC. Another member of the Strathclyde team, Sandy Fraser, said that Sue Miller had accused them of being prima donnas. Fraser was critical of the decision to separate siblings. The workers were also not comfortable with the decision to deny the children the chance to take their own clothes or toys with them. These were allegedly potential triggers. Triggers refer to items or words abusers may use to remind a child not to disclose any abuse. When officials from outside Orkney tried to get more information about the abuse that was alleged to have taken place, they were told that Reverend Morris Mackenzie had supposedly taken children into a circle and penile penetration took place. Sandy Fraser told the inquiry, quote, What Heddle said was that the police were not being over-optimistic. It was very, very hard to get evidence. They would get search warrants and it was hoped the children would get out as quickly as possible. If the parents objected to the search, the police would need to arrest them. The transcripts and tapes were not worth a toss for criminal proceedings unless the police could find something at the houses. Sandy Fraser said that he regretted taking part in the removals based on the scant information that had been provided to them, but they had been pushed to respect the judicial authority of those in charge. A social worker testified, In retrospect, I don't think we should have made the agreement to participate on the basis of the information we had. We should have spent a lot more time in talking to Mrs Miller and her colleagues about how they actually saw us being used and what value we could be in the overall investigation. Another Strathclyde social worker, Maureen Hughes, told the inquiry that the early morning raids went against normal social work practice. She said... It almost smacks of Gestapo tactics to get people when they are unaware or very early in the morning. It is better to do it during the day. I accepted the reasons why it was done on Orkney. I don't think that would be the case in any other situation because we could have kept the children locally. Maureen Hughes was one of the many mainland social workers who criticised the unprofessional nature of the operation. She expounded that Lindsay Stevenson and Leslie Hood, who worked for the RSS PCC, were notably inexperienced, and it was evident throughout. You said that Lindsay Stevenson was immobilised by fear at the Brown household and did not do anything to help. Hughes went on to say that Leslie Hood had made simplistic comments about child sex abuse which made Hughes question the overall credibility of the operation. When she asked them to postpone the removals until they could review the information, Hughes was told that the removals would go ahead regardless. Hence, she participated to make sure the children involved were taken care of. 
It was Maureen Hughes who had the most concern about how Liz McLean had carried out the disclosure interviews. She said, I did not have a lot of confidence in her. I was expecting an understanding of her techniques and methodology, and she really just gave a narrative of what we already knew, and that is why we started asking questions. The sense of confusion and worry about what was happening was echoed by Rena McCary, another mainland social worker who felt it was surprising that the three Williams children made similar statements to the same person within a few days, despite saying nothing of the sort in the months prior, after they had been in care. Maureen Hughes had described the way Liz McLean and the team leader Sue Miller worked together as a quote, incestuous working relationship, in that neither seemed to be putting the interests of the children ahead of their own pursuit of proof for unfounded allegations. When Hughes confronted Miller about separating two brothers so far from home, Miller shrugged it off as a silly consideration. Maureen Hughes felt as though Sue Miller was not doing her duty as the team leader when she failed to dissolve any of the tension between the Orkney social workers and those who had come to help. Paul Hersey, who was the coordinator for the five children who were fostered in the Highland region, said that he had explained to the children that they had been taken into care because there was a ring of people, with a man in the middle, who drew children in and abused them. This in itself proves that the children had already been told about information they supposedly disclosed spontaneously in later interviews. Paul Hersey detailed that the children denied any abuse had taken place. According to Hersey, Peter Hill, one of the children who was said to have made corroborating statements, called the allegations rubbish and said he did not understand why someone was saying that had happened to him. The Strathclyde social workers also testified about returning the children to their parents. Susan Brown, the coordinator for the children fostered in Strathclyde, told the inquiry that she wanted to delay the children's return so she could get place of safety orders for one of the Brown children, Stephen. Stephen Brown had apparently asked if going home meant that bad things would not happen there anymore. This concerned the children's coordinator, but the Orkney social workers told her that no order would be granted Stephen had not said anything, quote, materially new. Strathclyde coordinator Susan Brown also criticised the media coverage of the case. She said it had caused anxiety for the children's foster parents when the moral panic was publicised, meaning the foster parents knew the children were alleged victims of ritualistic sexual abuse. Brown said they knew what they were dealing with, but it was the media who linked it to satanic abuse. The children's coordinator was asked to define satanic abuse and said, 
if you are acting together as a group to do something harmful to any other human being, you are actually raising certain powers that could touch on that. I am making distinctions, but what I don't know because I am not qualified to say is whether one thing can merge into the other. The coordinator for the children fostered in Strathclyde said that there was inadequate training for social workers to deal with cases where this type of abuse was suspected. Susan Brown was asked if this form of abuse was more prevalent than people would believe. Brown replied, It took a long time for people to realise that people physically abuse children. It then took some time to realise that they, in such numbers, sexually abuse children. And it has taken more time to realise that they sexually abuse children in another fashion. Children's coordinator in the Highlands, Paul Hersey, said that upon arrival at Kirkwall Airport, the tarmac was flooded with people. Members of the press, the children's parents and crowds of supporters who ran towards the aircraft when it landed. He recalled that, quote, My concern was that there were no controls that I could see. People were taking the children away, and although I presumed it was their parents, I had no idea who they were. As far as I was concerned, it could have been anybody. Phil Green, a social work area manager from Glasgow, had been on the flight with Sam McTaggart from the RSS PCC. Green said that he had asked the social work director, Paul Lee, to make arrangements for a safe area for the children to be returned to their parents, but he was told that none of the Orkney social workers would be present. They were afraid for their own safety. Phil Green told the inquiry that there was even a pipe band at the airport. A police officer boarded the plane and told the children to disembark, but advised the social workers to stay on board. Green stated, I said if that was the case, I would just have the plane turned around and flown back to Glasgow. He agreed to let us out but said he would not be responsible for our safety. While the Orkney social workers seemed to distance themselves from the case once Sheriff Kelby threw out the allegation against the parents, the mainland social workers who had been in contact with the children were concerned that the children seemed to be behaving inappropriately. Bill Green said at the inquiry, I was very concerned because they were being very sexually explicit in their language. I was listening carefully, as it was still in the back of my mind that Strathclyde could take out place of safety orders if it was felt appropriate. Green explained it was likely their medical examinations and the questions they were asked in interviews resulted in the children's behaviour. He told the inquiry, The difficulty with these children is that even if no abuse occurred at all, they had still been put through an experience where they had been sexualised by the protective organisations. 
Ireland's coordinator Paul Hersey had told the inquiry that he was shocked to find out the case had been thrown out and called the way the children were returned a, quote, complete shambles. As he felt that more time should have been given to the foster parents, social workers and children to prepare them to go home. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand. And now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safe for families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to Centair.com and using promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at Centair.com. Members of the Northern Constabulary also spoke at the inquiry. Detective Superintendent George Goff from Inverness was the head officer in charge of the police involvement in the case. D.S. Goff said that the drawings done during the children's interviews made their stories more credible. He was basing this off what he had been told. 
Many of the children had simply instructed social workers on what to draw. Dieskov said that he had also been informed that one of the boys had blocked the door with a chair before making an allegation. The detective said, In my unqualified mind, it certainly seemed to me that a child speaking so and providing drawings more or less simultaneously almost provided a corroboration. Certainly for me it provided a credibility. The drawings depicted someone wearing a hooded cloak standing in a circle, which appeared to back up the story some of the children had apparently told. D.S. Goff explained, I thought this was not the kind of thing a child could invent. Examples of that nature I find quite convincing. D.S. Goff went on to say that he had been informed of an interaction a foster parent had with one of the nine children while they were in care. According to the foster parent, the power had gone out for a time, and when it returned she stated, Oh good, let there be light. One of the children, Peter Hill, allegedly replied, May the light not be upon us and God not be with us. D.S. Goff said that he had been told the boy had said a number of things that concerned the social workers and officers involved. The detective told the inquiry. He was telling stories to other children, particularly in the same household, and enacting them as he told them, and they were by any account strange and unusual stories. An example of the type of stories he was telling related to him having blood on his hands and being placed in a cardboard coffin with holes for air and carried to a cardboard hill. Panel reporter Gordon Sloan had said that a report was sent to him on March 11, 1991, stating that charges were to be brought against the parents of the nine children but at the inquiry, D.S. Goff denied any knowledge of that. The letter in question was produced at the inquiry by the Inquiry Council representative Donald McFadden QC, but the police maintained that they did not have sufficient evidence to press charges. Detective Inspector Heddle was the lead officer in charge of carrying out the duties imposed by D.S. Goff. He denied making a statement at the briefing the night before the children were removed in relation to having worthless evidence. He said, It was not the case that we had nothing. We had quite a deal of evidence in my mind, but had that been the only evidence we had to take to a court for criminal proceedings, it would have been very difficult to pursue it much further. D.I. Heddle claimed that the media presence on South Ronald Z had impeded his officers in their investigation. They could not search for the quarry where the abuse was alleged to have taken place. He also admitted that he had been told that one of the children claimed it was within a mile of their home. D.I. Heddle emphatically denied going to interview the oldest of the nine children in order to intimidate and pressure him into revealing evidence as the 21-day extension came to an end. 
He said that he was informed that a number of the children had described a man wearing a black cloak with a silver lion's head buckle, hooking children into the middle of a circle to be abused. Despite the belief of social workers and the police that the children were victims of sexual abuse, no medical evidence was found to support that allegation. Dr Charles Shepherd and Dr John MacDonald testified that they had found no indicators of sexual abuse when they examined the children. As well as the involvement of Orkney Islands Council, Strathclyde Regional Council, the RSSPCC, the legal guardians for the children and administrators for the Gillesland Residential School where Sam McEwen was kept. The children were also seen by psychologists appointed by their curators and the children's panel. Dr Judith Trowell, a consultant children's psychologist, served as an independent witness to the inquiry. She had assessed the tapes and recordings that were available from the children's interviews. It was revealed that the same people who were involved in interviewing the Williams children had also questioned the other nine children, and many of those interviews took place consecutively. Dr Trowell said of the interviewers, They were going from one interview to the next. They were having to do many interviews in the day, more than I would ever consider doing without the space to stop and think about how should we plan this interview? What sorts of questions do we need to ask? They came out of seeing one child into seeing another child without really any time to reflect and think and plan. Yes, there were leading questions, but there was this driven quality, the pressure to get the work done, to find the answer, and I think they got caught up in that. Dr Trowell felt there was insufficient time for those conducting the interviews to plan them. She said that investigative interviewing, as was undertaken in this case, requires specialist skills. Liz McLean was not equipped to carry them out. The interviewers did not maintain an open mind and Dr. Trowell felt that the explicit information given by the interviewers negated any spontaneous disclosures that were made later. Dr. Trowell went as far as describing the first meeting between the interviewers and Wendy Brown as a, quote, superb example of how not to do an investigative interview. The way the interviewers stressed that they believed there had been abuse may have led the children to think there was no point in saying otherwise, according to the inquiry report. The interviewers gave the children too much detail about the allegations they were trying to corroborate, meaning anything the children said afterwards that supported the interviewers' belief could have been a result of what the children had already been told. In fact, there was no reason the other children should have been interviewed. They never made an allegation of abuse. Even when they were asked if something had happened, they had denied it until they had been told what the interviewers believed and after numerous interviews. 
The social workers and the police present at the interviews made no secret of their agenda, and the children would say whatever they felt was right in order to make the question stop. No full transcripts were attained from the three critical interviews that prompted the removal of the nine other Orkney children. Everyone relied on Liz McLean's account and opinion of the disclosure therapy, despite the fact that she openly believed the allegations were true. The inquiry heard that social workers knew of the four families prior to the allegations made against them, because they had openly supported Mrs Williams when the social work department was involved with her children. Mr and Mrs McEwen had helped to tutor Olive Williams when she dropped out of school and helped take care of the children when Mrs Williams was suddenly a single parent who had never had the chance to parent her many children. Mrs Thomas advocated for Mrs Williams in meetings and wrote letters on her behalf. On the evening that the social workers went to take custody of the youngest Williams child, a journalist informed director Paul Lee that Mrs Williams had taken sanctuary in the local church. Mrs Thomas was seen at the manse where Mrs Williams and the child were hiding. She was asked if she knew where they were, and she said no. Mrs Thomas also said she could not open the door to let officials in because it was jammed. That night, the local GP, Dr Richard Broadhurst, called Chief Inspector Ratter from the Northern Constabulary to tell him that the three-year-old was safe and well and would be brought to the children's panel hearing the next morning. Orkney social workers did not trust the local GP following this interaction. Social workers said that Dr Broadhurst had also supported Mrs Williams when her children were under supervision in 1989. The leader of the Strathclyde social work team told the inquiry that Sue Miller had indicated Dr Broadhurst and others in the community as potential participants in the abuse. While the nine children were in care on the mainland, a case conference was held on March 19, 1991. The purpose of the conference was to pull the information from those in attendance. Paul D, Sue Miller, Jeanette Chisholm, RSS PCC representatives and the police. None of the parents were invited. This should have only have happened if the parents were actively involved in a pending criminal prosecution. The parents had only ever been detained, not arrested or charged. Mrs Hill told the inquiry that some of the minimal information she was given about her children while they were in care was absurd. She was told one of her children could draw, which she knew to be false. Mr and Mrs Hill's house was not searched, nor were they detained. Mrs Hill felt as though the department had, quote, legally kidnapped her children. 
Mr Thomas told the inquiry that he felt surrounded by tangible hostility when the team of social workers and the police came to his home on February 27th. He said he had been followed to the bathroom by a constable who relayed their progress over a walkie-talkie. Mr Thomas went on to say that when Mrs Williams called his home that morning, the detective unplugged the phone before he could say more than, they're taking my children away. It had been alleged by Sue Miller that Mrs Thomas had said her daughter might have been abused by Reverend Mackenzie. Mrs Thomas denied that completely and said that she actually said if he had, she would kill him. Furthermore, Mr Thomas said that he had been lied to by the social worker in charge of his children's care. They were only told minimal information such as the children were eating and sleeping well. He stated, I think much of what was told to us was inexact, therefore untruthful. Later, when the children came back, we saw that this little chapter was in fact a little work of fiction. It did not reassure us at the time, it was transparent. When the children came back, Matilda Thomas's hair was matted. Her fingernails were uncut and she had mouth ulcers. Mr and Mrs McEwen also testified at the inquiry. They had little faith in social workers, including Gordon Sloan, the panel reporter. The couple spoke highly of Catherine Kemp, the previous panel reporter. She had been suspended before the Williams children were taken into care. Mr McEwen said that the social work department refused to give them any information, so they were forced to speak to the media. Talking about the children, he later said, They were taken away to be disorientated and coached into a story. We're not talking about inviting children to say if there's a problem. We're talking about an agenda driven by the questionnaire whereby you believe that satanic rings of abuse exist. It was not until later the McEwans were informed that their eldest son, Sam McEwen, had been placed in a residential school instead of a foster placement. Mrs Brown felt that there had been no point talking to the social workers after her children were removed. The authorities seemed convinced that the removal was justified. The children were taken on February 27th, but Mr Brown was not interviewed by the police until April 21st. The key members of the inquiry visited South Ronaldsea during the proceedings. This was to get an idea of where the children had been when they were removed and how far the homes were away from each other. Following the inquiry and the testimony from officials and family members, Lord Clyde wrote a 342-page report. In summary, it was concluded that while the social workers had acted in good faith, they were tainted by a belief that abuse definitely did exist 
and they had to prove it. Officials were not objective, nor did they treat the children as individuals or distinguish between the case of the nine children and the Williams children. The same people were involved with both cases and all of the interviews. The commentary of the events prior to removal state that previous experience with the Williams family had coloured the social department's approach. RSS PCC worker Liz McLean was expecting there to be abuse, and the others took her word for it, despite McLean's lack of qualification and expertise in investigative interviews. Lead social worker Sue Miller's, quote, dominant personality made it difficult for anyone to challenge her. Officials acted too quickly in removing the children. They ignited a chain of events which they should not have done without lengthy consideration. There was numerous chances to reassess the situation, most certainly when one of the Williams children described her account as all lies concerning her allegations. This was confirmed when the medical exam showed no indicators of abuse. The inquiry report made a number of recommendations. This included that investigators needed to distinguish between taking an allegation seriously and believing that claim. In this case, the allegation was believed, even after the children had denied it, retracted it, or simply admitted to lying to please the adult repeatedly questioning them. Whether there was abuse or not will never be tried in court because the investigation was thrown out. The parents will never get the chance to prove their innocence and the social workers will never know if the children were allowed to return to abuse. Parents should have always been informed about a suspicion, investigation and asked to cooperate. In this case, they were frozen out and not even allowed to send letters to their children. One of the parents said to a reporter for the Herald newspaper, The presumption of innocence has not been enough. We have never been able to clear our names. A case currently in the House of Lords will decide whether an individual can sue an authority. Once that is clear, we will sue the council for damages as the only way we can clear ourselves. Another parent remarked, There is an anger that the main issue of innocence is unresolved. We can only hope changes to the system will mean such gross blunders cannot happen again. We also want constructive dialogue so we can move on and have normal lives again. We want social workers and all other agencies to face up to their wrongdoings and admit what they did was a monstrous blunder. After the parents of the nine children tried and failed to get the case heard, they were given a full apology and monetary compensation from Orkney Island's council. The Crown Office had announced there would be no prosecutions, but the Williams children seemed to slip from the public eye again. After the youngest Williams children were taken into care in November 1990, the community rallied around their mother in support. 
months later when those supporters had their own children taken. Mrs Williams had to try and navigate a system that had only ever taken things from her. While the Williams family were mentioned throughout the inquiry, their case was simply background information on how the other case was handled. Mrs Williams' children remained in care for some time after the other nine children had returned home. The two youngest Williams' children were eventually adopted. Some of the youngsters spent so long in care that they began calling their foster parents Mummy and Daddy. Mrs Williams explained that while she missed the girls, she believed that she didn't, quote, deserve her younger children morally, because she felt as though she had failed her older children when she could not protect them from the abuse inflicted by their father. Many of the children spent over three years in care. A long-fought campaign by Mrs Williams and the Orkney Seven Action Group, which was founded to get the children home, meant that for those years Mrs Williams had to embark on a 200-mile round trip to see any of her children that were in care on the mainland. A spokesperson for the Orkney Seven Action Group said in 1993, The children are not orphans, nor are they abandoned. No evidence exists to show that Mrs. Williams is an abuser. No evidence exists to show that Mrs. Williams is a bad mother. When four of the children were eventually returned home, it was done in silence, with little to no media coverage and no apology or compensation. Some of the Williams children, or W children as they are known publicly, have spoken out in the years since they were taken from their home. One of the children, Esther, wrote a book called If Only I Had Told, which details not only the entirety of the child abuse scandal from her perspective, but her experience while in care. After an initial place of safety order was imposed, the children were supposed to be taken somewhere they could recover from the trauma inflicted on them by their father, but instead many of them were placed in abusive situations. Esther was sent to Raddery, a residential school on the Black Isle. Here she was repeatedly raped by Adrian Batty, a house parent who was entrusted to care for her and other children in the facility. He was convicted in 1994 when other girls came forward detailing his crimes at Raddery over a six-year period. Following the verdict, Sheriff Crow, who presided over the trial, told Batty, You were found guilty of five offences of lewd, libidinous and indecent behaviour involving five separate girls all under the age of 16. All stated they were unhappy about what was being done to them, but they felt unable to complain. It is disturbing that one of the girls thought that this was to be expected in the normal world. The school was set up to treat emotionally damaged children some of whom had suffered previous sexual abuse. You must have known in general terms why they were at the school. You were a house parent and you abused a position of trust. It might be mentioned that the school behaved in a naive manner, 
It was happy to employ you, though you had no educational or social work qualifications. It was happy that the night room was moved from the boys to the girls' wing, and happy that supervision was carried out by an unmarried man. Adrian Batty had access to the children's files and used their past trauma as a means of control. Esther tried to take her life as a result of his abuse and could not disclose what he had done until years later. She spent years in therapy trying to overcome the effects, not only of her father's abuse, but the way she was treated by social workers. Her sister May, who has also identified herself, said that she was in fact abused after she was taken from her home in 1990. For three years she was raped by a foster parent beginning when she was just nine years old. During the first nine months she was in care she was subjected to interviews twice weekly. In a subsequent interview with the Herald in 2006, May said, It was as if I was being interrogated by social workers as if I was a criminal. Speaking with the BBC, May would also say, Eventually you would break down. After an hour or so of saying, No, this never happened, I don't remember it. I don't even know what you were talking about. I can't imagine how I got out of the room if I didn't say yes. But I don't remember saying yes to anything. May said that Liz McLean disregarded everything she would say and told her to behave herself and cooperate. She was promised sweets if she did as she was told. May went on to say that she was informed adults on the island had abused her and was pressured into drawing things the interviewers said happened. She explained, We kept telling them that we had not been abused but they wouldn't listen. The interview techniques used were designed to break us down. To take a child away from her mother at the age of eight is unforgivable. We were part of a normal, happy family, and suddenly we were shattered. I want to see justice, and I don't care how long it takes. The people responsible should be made to answer for what they've done. May said that she was moved to different foster homes around ten times. Some of her carers were extremely abusive. She tried to run away more than once, but was always taken back. Her allegations against her foster parents were labelled as malicious by the police, and no further action was taken. At a children's hearing in 1995, May said that she wanted to go home to her mother, but the social worker Paul Hersey said that May had previously said she did not want to go back to Orkney, so it was agreed to proceed with caution. May's mother said at the hearing, I'm not interested in pressuring children. I'm not interested in having a child in my home unless she wants to be there. Like many victims of sexual and physical abuse, May felt as though she needed to understand why abusers do what they do, so she studied psychology. 
As an adult, she felt empowered by educating herself on what happened to her. She began legal action against Orkney Islands Council in 2006. Speaking in 2008, May said, I'm suing them for what they did to me in care. The misconduct of it, the fact foster parents can do that. It was allowed to go on. Not for money. If money comes as a consequence, so be it. I've lost a lot. I'm not prepared to lose any more. The family were never charged with anything and that's why I'm going to court. I was given no physical examination. If they had done that, the abusers would have been imprisoned. This is what my case is for. Getting people to face justice for physical and sexual abuse. I don't care if they've got foster family in front of their name. They are abusers. It will be dealt with in a legal way now. One of the older Williams children who was alleged to have made the first claim of abuse against the members of the community was later diagnosed with a mental illness and institutionalised. Questions still remain for many, including the children who were taken. So where are we now? Reverend Morris Mackenzie asked for another inquiry to be held so he could clear his name. The Reverend was not asked to speak at the first inquiry, which cost £6 million, despite him being at the centre of the allegations. He died in 2003 without being able to prove his innocence in a court of law. When Sheriff Kelby publicly criticised the case in 1990, it meant that the evidence was never heard. Although the parents and people suspected of abuse all have a presumption of innocence, the whole truth may never be known. All social workers received the brunt of the criticism, the Northern Constabulary were equally involved in what they called a joint process. The fallout of the scandal made social workers fear losing their jobs if they investigated anything similar to the ritualistic abuse suspected in Orkney. Calling the abuse satanic in the media had a trivialising effect on organised abuse because people felt that the moral panic surrounding Satanism was unfounded and less believable. The local authorities tried to speak to the press, but it was much too late. Officials said that the lack of evidence demonstrated how devious the alleged abusers were. They did not consider that the evidence did not exist. Jeanette Chisholm maintains that the social workers were right. She said, I can't decide if things happened or didn't happen, but people saying things didn't happen doesn't affect me in the slightest, because that's my experience of what people always say. I'd be very surprised if they said it did. Liz McLean, the woman who conducted the interviews on which the removals were based, 
told Sarah Nielsen in 1992 that the most distressing part for her was watching a little girl reunite with her parents at the airport in Kirkwall. McLean said, It broke my heart absolutely. We had failed her, and I will never be able to get that sight out of my mind. The panel reporter who had originally wanted the supervision order on the Williams children to be ended in 1989 was suspended shortly after. Catherine Kemp's suspension preceded the chain of events that led to the removal of 16 children from their homes. Kemp was reinstated after 13 months, but she resigned six months later. She said that in that time she had received harassing letters and her office was broken into. Files stolen included those of the Williams children. Social work director Paul Lee was suspended in 1993 with full pay. A report from the Social Work Services Inspectorate released in 1996 found that there was still a level of distrust in Orkney. GPs were now more reluctant to examine children in child protection cases, fearing they would be implicated like Dr Broadhurst had been. Three decades on, those involved have either distanced themselves or tried to get answers without success. The RSS-PCC have since become children first, changing their name and role in 1995. They no longer investigate abuse like they try to do in this case. It appeared the children did not come first, as Sarah Nelson said in her book Tackling Child Sexual Abuse. Quote, After the report was published, the public discourse was all about apologies to adults, vindication of adults, resignations by adults, the need for community reconciliation among adults, and for Orkney Social Work Department to establish its good faith among the adults of South Ronaldsea. Nothing could have been more revealing about the retrospective priorities our society gives to adults and to children. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.